Well, we are into the final act of the book of Ruth in the final chapter, and there are really two scenes in this last chapter of Ruth. The first uh, that we're going to look at today happens at the city gate of Bethlehem. This is a, a, a legal setting. It's, it's essentially like a, a modern-day courtroom. And the second and final scene, which we'll look at next week, happens in, in, in a home, presumably the home of, of Boaz and Ruth, uh, about nine months after this one or so. Uh, and we can sort of guess what might happen there. But before we get to today's text, let me remind us that this little book, this book of Ruth, is a story of, of rebellion, repentance, uh, redemption, and restoration. In these four chapters that we've looked at over the course of six weeks by the time we're done, we see uh, an incredible narrative that, that mirrors our own. It mirrors the way that, that we uh, can see God redeeming us and our story as his people. We've also seen, and we will continue to see today, how, how human decisions ultimately carry out the plans of God and how, how Jesus shows up in the ordinary details of our lives. I was reminded this week as I studied that one of the most encouraging things I, I think about this book as well is just how, how ordinary it is. Think about it. In these four chapters, uh, God never actually speaks. No angels show up. No miracles happen. Instead, we're, we're reading about this family that's displaced by famine. They're, they're burying loved ones. They're struggling to make ends meet. And there are some complex relationships. And if we just give this book a, a sort of quick surface-level read, uh, we can probably identify with at least some of what's going on here. Loss and grief and pain. But the beauty of this book is that as we study a little bit deeper and we slow down, we can see that even though the voice of God isn't heard, He's in control. He's making things happen. His, his way, His word, and His will are guiding and directing people. And even though no angels show up on the scene, God uses his people as his messengers. Even though no great miracles happen, God is, is caring for and providing for Ruth and Naomi. And even though some of the characters act irresponsibly and recklessly at times, God still uses them. Now, I don't know about you, but, but I can resonate with this. This speaks well to me. I don't always feel like God is oh so present with me in my everyday life. I, I don't always understand why things are going on the way they are. I don't always realize that the myriad of ways that God is, is acting in my life, is providing for me and my family. And I've definitely got a history of being irresponsible and, and recklessly charging out in front of God's timing. Anyone else able to identify with any of that? So for me, it's, it's, it's super encouraging to have a book like this, another place like this in our Bible, to be able to know that, that God is at work even in the midst of our average, everyday, ordinary stuff of life. Now, I would love to hear from you as well. What are, what are some of the things that have stood out to you in this series so far? What's, what's God teaching you? Uh, again, drop me a note in the comments section below or beside, and I look forward to hearing from all of you. And we will uh, gather again following the service in a, a Google Meet virtual lobby foyer. I'll, we'll drop that link in the comments sections after the service too, and invite to, to share that. What, what's God teaching you through this series? Well, last week we saw Ruth taking this huge risk and going down to, to basically propose to Boaz in the middle of the night. She, she left the safety and security of the town and went out under the 
cover of pitch darkness and, and went to meet him. Now there's a lot going on with the, the Leverite laws and the kinsman redeemer laws of, of Israel in that day that, that those were, they were put in place to protect people like Naomi and, and like Ruth. But there's also a sense that this relationship between Ruth and Boaz uh, that's been developing for the last, you know, through the barley harvest and the wheat harvest, so we've got probably a couple months here, it seems like their relationship is going beyond simply a legal obligation. There's a hint of romance breaking through as well. So as readers, we can start and, and sort of feel this tension when last week we, we read this, this proposal happened and then, and then Boaz said, listen, it's, it's true that I am a redeemer. This is, I would love to be the one who could redeem and rescue you and Naomi, but, but there is someone closer. There's someone nearer than I, someone who has first rights to be the redeemer. And as we read this, we might say, what do you mean there's someone else? They're going to ruin this whole thing. We're, we're cheering for uh, Ruth and Boaz. But in this moment, Boaz praised Ruth. He agreed to her marriage proposal, even after he was awkwardly woken up in the middle of the night. And then finally, chapter 3 sort of leaves us hanging as, as Ruth comes home and is, is uh, relaying to Naomi all the things that happened. And, and Naomi comments that surely Boaz will not rest until this matter is settled today. There's urgency here. One writer sums this situation up for us this way. He says, Boaz was an honorable man whom God used mightily. Now the book may do nothing more than hint at romance between Ruth and Boaz, but it clearly trumpets covenantal faithfulness. Above all, Boaz was a man of faith and integrity. He cared about keeping God's instruction because he knew that this was the avenue for ministering to real people with real needs and so advancing God's redemptive plan through his life. And so as we head into chapter 4, and as we're in the midst of this COVID-19 virus as well, this is where the story speaks to you and me. Do we look at our lives as opportunities to glorify God by loving and serving others? Or do we view our own situation in terms of other agendas? The easy way to maybe ask that question is this, whose kingdom are we building? Who are we living for? Are we striving to, to please God and, and follow his instructions because we know that's what's best for us? Or are we looking out just for ourselves? Let's start reading our text this morning. Ruth 4, verse 1 and 2. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down. And behold, the Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. And so uh, Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, and sit down here. And the man turned aside and sat down. And then he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. And so they sat down. Now, Boaz wants to marry Ruth. We established that in the last chapter. But as we read just a few minutes ago in, in verse 12 of, of chapter 3 there, there is a closer relative to Ruth and Naomi, a closer relative of Elimelech, who has the first right to redeem both the women and their property, which we're going to find out that, that they have right away. And so Boaz goes to the city gate. Again, this is the place where business happened. This is where legal matters were settled and, and social relationships were established. This is kind of the, the hub of the city was the gate. And now, just like Ruth happened to end up in Boaz field in chapter 2, Boaz arrives at the, at the gate, and just as he arrives, this other redeemer happens to come by. Behold, here he is. Once again, the narrator is showing us that God's hand is at work. 
Now, interestingly enough, we're actually not told the name of this character, the Redeemer. Now, in the version, the translation I just read, the English Standard Version, it says that Boaz addresses him as friend. Uh, Another translation uh, omits the word friend altogether, but the phrase that's used in the original language actually is translated more literally as as such and such, or a certain one, like a certain one arrived at the gate. Now, the point of bringing this up is that throughout the book of Ruth, the narrator has been very careful to note the names of the key figures, the main characters. And yet here is this this key uh, player, this redeemer, he remains nameless, simply called Mr. Such-and-Such or or Mr. So-and-So. He's left to us by the narrator in anonymity. And so perhaps friend isn't the best way to translate what's going on here, the best way to refer to this other redeemer. One other author notes this. He says, the designation should be understood not as a friendly way to identify this nearer kinsman, but actually as a pejorative term. To the writer of the book of Ruth, Mr. So-and-so was not an honorable man whom God remembered by name. In this situation, Mr. So-and-so thought only of himself and his interests. And, and as we're about to see, he would gladly add Elimelech's property to his own holdings. But when reminded of the, of the marriage to Ruth and, and raising an heir for Elimelech and Malon, he changed his mind in a hurry. That's who we've got in this other unnamed Mr. So-and-so closer redeemer. And contrast that with Boaz who right from the beginning of chapter 2 has been presented to us as the worthy man, one of integrity. And right here, he gets to work right away. He sees the man, he sits him down, and he gathers enough other people, enough elders of the town to render a legal decision and begins to present his legal case. Let's keep reading. Verse 3. Then Boaz said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. Now, just a quick technical point here. We'll stop here after verse 3. When Naomi returned to Bethlehem, she said she had nothing, but now apparently she had land to sell. So so what gives? Is is something wrong in the text here? Well, let's dig a little bit deeper. In in those days, the land was divided among families or clans, and it would be passed down from generation to generation. Now, if if a family was in dire straits, they could sell not the land itself, but actually the potential production from the land. Typically, the the price would then be negotiated based on the the date of the transaction to the next year of Jubilee, which was a time that that the Lord set for the people where where the land would be returned to that family. However, in Naomi's case, she has a couple of things working against her. So maybe she does have this land. They've been gone for 10 years, so it's unlikely that it's been worked or served by anyone else. By virtue of her age and her gender, she actually wasn't able to farm the land herself. She wasn't able to prosper by herself working the land. And second, another thing working against her is the land was to pass from from father to son, but now Naomi had no male heir. Her sons had both died. And they had left no children behind them. And so there was no one there to inherit her husband's property, to work it, and to take care of her. And so what she was doing here was was selling the rights to farm the land with the understanding that 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 purchase price that they would then wrestle with and negotiate would be what she would live on going forward. But the really big problem was that if she did sell the land, which is what Boaz is doing for her here, 
when that year of Jubilee came, there would be no male heir to return the land to, especially if she herself passed away before that time. And so the land would actually pass out of the immediate family of Elimelech, and his name would, would disappear from the covenant community in Bethlehem. This would mean that, that this family name would no longer be attached to the land, and that they would have, would have actually lost their share, their physical share of the promised land. And so then God's promise to be their God and, and them to be God's children would, would be seemingly nullified because this has happened. And so you see, there's a lot going on here. The land here wasn't just a piece of field, just, just dirt that they could farm, but it also represented God's covenant with his people. And that's why it was so important to keep the land in the family because, it, because God had promised that the people would be a part of a family and they would promise the land in his covenant. So this is all really important stuff going on. Verse four, Boaz continues and he says, so I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here, buy the land in the presence of them and in the presence of the elders and of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know for there is no one beside you to redeem it and I come after you. And so the man then said, I will redeem it. Mr. So-and-so apparently likes the prospects of adding this land to his portfolio and being the closest relative that's his legal right to do so. And so he says, yes, I'll take it. Now, in this instant, this seems like a a tragic turn of events for Boaz. Mr. So-and-so redeeming the land would mean that he would also take in and marry Ruth as the redeemer. But Boaz continues in verse 5. Then Boaz says, Oh, and uh, the day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself. I cannot redeem it. Now, whether this was a clever negotiating tactic by Boaz or not, he initially didn't mention Ruth the Moabite, did he? This wasn't merely a land deal. There are lives at stake, lives that are attached to that land, and a a family name that is at risk of dying out. If you remember back in chapter 1, both of Naomi's sons also died childless, so there was no heir. Again, what Naomi needed was was also what Ruth needed, was a redeemer to come and, and marry Ruth to care for Naomi in her old age to marry Ruth and, and, and raise an heir for Elimelech and Malon, the son who had passed away. And so whoever this redeemer was, they were going to have to be someone with, with reasonable means in order to first pay for the land, but then also bring Naomi and Ruth into his own household. Now, it does need to clearly be said that even though our English translation says here that, that you will also uh, acquire Ruth the Moabite, this is not meant to reduce her to just a piece of property or a piece of merchandise that's kind of a throw into the deal. And we can, we can tell this, especially from the relationship between Ruth and Boaz. They seem to want to marry one another. Ruth wanted Boaz to marry her so that, that they might produce an heir and redeem the land of her father-in-law as well. She wanted this. And so Boaz, doing what he's doing here, he's, he's acting properly again as a worthy, respectable man. He's, he's following the customs of the land. He's acting within the covenant rules of God's people found in Leviticus. And he's also lovingly acting on Ruth's behalf. 
as we saw last week, both Ruth and Boaz are worthy people who are looking out for one another and striving to do things God's way. But again, compare these two would-be redeemers. Now, when Boaz arrived at the gate, no doubt he knew exactly what he was doing, exactly what he was getting into. He would have known the cost of the land. He would have known that he would have to be uh, marrying Ruth and taking care of Naomi. And he would know that if Ruth had a son, the land and the investment that, that Boaz put into that land would pass on to that boy. It would not stay in Boaz's name. It would go back to the line of Elimelech. But for Mr. So-and-so, the idea of acquiring the land had been appealing, but the responsibilities to Ruth and Naomi changed his mind. Now, earlier in the book, we read that the whole town was talking about the return of Naomi and the return of her with Ruth the Moabite. So it seems odd that he doesn't realize that Ruth was there and would have been a part of this deal. But all of a sudden, it seems as though he kind of does some quick math in his head and actually realizes that that marrying Ruth and and caring for Naomi put his own current holdings, his his current inheritance at risk. Again, if if he does take in Ruth, they have a son, all the the money that he's invested in the land and and in caring for uh, the women and raising this child, they're gone. They come out of his own inheritance. Probably he had his own wife and kids already, so it would have come out of his children's inheritance. But again, contrast this to Boaz. The Redeemer comes across not uh, as, as a worthy man like Boaz, but instead this other Redeemer comes, as a, comes across as a, a calculating businessman, apparently most concerned with his bottom line and maintaining the status quo for his family. It's okay to ask, add to that, but let's be careful. And so he exercised what was his legal right, and he passed on this deal. He decided not to redeem the land, not to redeem Naomi and Ruth. I appreciate how one commentator, Dean Ulrich, sums this up for us. He says, in some sense, the nearer redeemer resembled Orpah, who acted according to conventional wisdom and so disappeared from the narrative. Remember back in chapter one, uh, when Ruth and Naomi were coming back, uh, Naomi said to Ruth and Orpah, her daughter-in-law, said, listen, go back to your people, go back to your families. Maybe you'll be able to find rest there in the arms of a husband. And Again, conventional wisdom says, yes, Ruth isn't going to have any more kids for me, so I need to find a husband somewhere. So Orpah left. That's what he's saying here. But he goes on and says, at least she was named. Worse than Orpah, though, this nearer kinsman used the law for his own advantage and callously left the two widows in their plight and two male relatives, the sons, Malon and Chilion, without attachment to an inheritance in the promised land. He says, given the perpetuity of God's covenant and the Bible's affirmation of the resurrection, this nearer kinsman has essentially declared his lack of belief or interest in the future hope of God's people. He's working for himself. He's building his own kingdom. Again, Boaz, again, on the flip side, seals the deal. Look at verse 7. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, one drew off his sandal and gave it to another. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. And so when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, Boaz drew off his sandal. Now in the presence of the elders, right away, Boaz makes this deal official. He will redeem the land, he will care for Naomi, he will marry Ruth. And again, in this, once again, we see God's providence and provision through Boaz. 
We've read before that he's, he's an older gentleman. He, he says to, to Ruth in the last chapter, uh, this, this kindness you've done to me, you haven't gone after younger men. He's a bit older. He's financially established. God has blessed him. and He has the, the margin, which we talked about at the beginning. He's got the margin that he can move and he can have the ability to, to make this transaction to redeem Ruth, to rescue. Several weeks ago, we challenged one another and said, do we have enough margin in our lives to do that? Do we have the extra time? Do we have the extra energy or talents or finances to, to move when God says, move, step out in faith here and love your neighbor as yourself? Again, we see as, as well in Boaz a contrast between him and Elimelech, the father, the patriarch of this family. When In the beginning of, of Ruth, in Ruth chapter 1, where Elimelech left the protection and provision of God, they left Bethlehem to go to Moab, which ultimately led to tragedy for the family. Boaz instead was a man of faith and pulled these two women back out of tragedy, redeemed them, brought them back into the family. Verse 9, Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belong to Elimelech and all that belong to Chilion and to Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance. In the name of the dead uh, may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of this native place. You are witnesses this day. Now, fresh off his legal victory here, after following the customs and law, doing things God's way, Boaz launches into this speech in front of all those who are now gathered at the city gate. He's promising here lovingly to take care of Ruth as his wife, to take care of Naomi as well, to honor Ruth's deceased husband, Malon, and his brother, Chilion, and his deceased uh, father, Elimelech, as well. And so again, here he is proving himself to be that worthy man. He's taking these things on himself with great expense and also great responsibility. Ulrich again says this for us. He says, what made Boaz a noble person, a worthy man, is what potentially makes you and me noble. Boaz was a man of God. He had experienced God's redeeming grace and, and that transforms character. That grace comes to us through Jesus Christ who died to subdue our selfishness. Without Christ, we, we live for ourselves and we look out for ourselves. But because of Christ, we die to self and look out for others' interests, for Christ's interests. That's not to say that we don't have our own interests. We don't have the own, our own things that we like. It seems fair to say that Boaz actually wanted to marry Ruth as well. But we, as Boaz did, must also patiently and obediently submit those interests, those longings, those desires to God's. Now the witnesses here that were present responded to Boaz's speech by asking God's blessing on Ruth. Look at this. Verse 11. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman, Ruth, who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. And may you act worthily in Epaphrathah, and may you be renowned in Bethlehem, and may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring the Lord will give you by this young woman. This is a, a, a praise, this is a blessing, this is a, a sort of prophetic wish and hope that they, they pour out over Boaz here. When they asked that, that Ruth would be blessed like Rachel and Leah, they were accepting once for all and officially Ruth into their covenant community. 
They were wishing that she too would be a mother of the Israelites. They were no longer recognizing her as Ruth the Moabite, but instead they were now officially welcoming her into the family as a covenantal spiritual sister in the faith. Now, when the witnesses asked that Boaz's name would be known throughout history, well, we're talking about him today, some 3,000 years later. Learning from him, we're lifting him up as an example of the worthy man. Still, that seems to have come true. When they ask that, that God make their home like that of Perez, they're asking that the family legacy of, of Boaz, who himself was a descendant of Perez, was also born in Bethlehem, would be carried on by his own son. Now, there is no guarantee of a son at all. Remember, in 10 years, Ruth did not have a, any children. But they're asking that, that his line would be carried on through his son here in Bethlehem. And just a little spoiler alert, we see that coming to pass in verse 13 next week. So, what we've seen in these verses this morning is that Boaz shines as a strong, bold, wise, and even a a shrewd, careful redeemer. He's a wise man of action who, who made a promise to Ruth and then right away went into town called a town meeting, invited an unnamed man, Mr. So-and-so, to sit down and make a decision. And then in a short period, he himself obeyed the law and redeemed Ruth. He's a man that was able to do this because he had lived with personal and professional integrity. He was one who was a bold follower of the God of Israel, whose whose faith led him to action. This is a man whose life was shaped by his faith. Remember how he greeted his workers as though they were just leaving a, a, a church meeting. May the Lord bless you. This is a man who understood God's law, not just simply as regulations or a checklist to to make sure you get the lowest standard done, but rather that, that God's law is a direction to lean into with your whole heart. Now, centuries later, another baby would be born in Bethlehem. Another son whose lineage can be traced back through Perez, through Boaz, all the way back to Abraham, and that son is Jesus. And Jesus comes as our great redeemer, the one that that Boaz is foreshadowing or prefiguring for us in so many ways. Like Boaz was related to Ruth and Naomi, so Jesus as God came to be related to us as a man. Like the women couldn't save and redeem themselves, we too can't save ourselves from uh, our rebellion, from our turning and going away. Remember, the book of Ruth is a book all about repentance, all about turning back to God. Just like Boaz wasn't actually obligated to save the women, Jesus wasn't obligated to save us. This was a choice submitted to his Father's will. Just like Boaz redeemed Ruth and Naomi, Jesus redeems us. Just like Boaz satisfied the demands and conditions of the law in his day, Jesus came, walked this earth, and lived a life without sin to satisfy the demands of God's law for us. Just like Boaz paid a personal price to redeem them, Jesus paid the ultimate price, giving up his life to redeem us. Just like Boaz loved Ruth as his bride, Jesus loves his church as his bride. And just like Boaz shared his land and his home with the women, Jesus, by his work on the cross, has made us a part of the family of God and promised to us an eternal home in his kingdom for us. Let me pray. 
God, thank you for this word. Thank you for this text. Thank you for the example of Boaz that you have for us. Thank you for the example of Ruth that you have to us, for us as well, that we, we saw in chapter two as she, she left everything she knew to follow you. Thank you that we see her being adopted into the family, being a part of the family, given a land, given a hope and a future in you. Jesus, thank you that you are our great redeemer. Thank you that you came and you walked this earth, you lived the life uh, perfectly obedient to your Father God to, to show us how to rightly relate to creation and to one another and to, and to God himself. And thank you that you were obedient to God even to the point of death on a cross. You gave up your life for us to redeem us, to satisfy the law that, that says because we have, have sinned, because we have rebelled against God, there's a price that needs to be paid for that. Thank you that you died and, and, and were in the grave and on that third day you raised again, conquering our three greatest enemies in Satan, sin, and death so that we can be brought back into the family. We can be redeemed, we can be ransomed and be grafted back into the family, the good family of God where we find hope and meaning and purpose and value and identity and a people and a land. Thank you for this. We pray all these things in Jesus' good name. Amen.